This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. The whole reason this podcast exists is to bring you new perspectives on macro and markets. We usually leverage either the unique indicator sets that we produce and incorporate into our research, or the thought leadership and insights of our academic and intellectual partners. But this week's guest is a little bit different. It's someone who actually manages risk for a living and with whom I've had a close working relationship for nearly 14 years now. Peter Vincent runs trading for State Street Global Markets in EMEA, and he has a wealth of experience trading FX and front-end rates in both developed and emerging markets. The conversations I have on the desk with Pete are always helpful and especially practical, reminding me that no matter how good an idea I might have is, it can always be tested. And given the wealth of experience he has working and trading through a variety of economic cycles, I'm especially keen to pick his brain on where we are currently in markets, given we do appear to be seeing so many inflection points in inflation, in rate markets, potentially in volatility. Well, this is good, Pete. You're the first trader we've had on the podcast before. I'm hoping uh, this is the first of many times we do this. But I wanted to start actually with your background, if that's all right, and talk about your experience, um, kind of how you got into trading. When was that? Where was it? What's the story there? So I guess I got into trading sort of a mix of fake coincidence and, and, and a bit of luck. <laughs> um, so economics was my favorite subject at school. Always had a strong interest in, in the macro side of the economy. Um, so it wasn't a big surprise I ended up studying economics uh, at university. Um, but when I got there, I sort of found I became a bit disillusioned with the course. It might surprise people to know that if you study economics at a university, you don't, you don't actually do much macroeconomics. You're doing lots of quantitative analysis and, and a good deal of micro. And the macro seemed to be a bit of an afterthought. So I kind of lost my way a bit. And then by chance, I happened to be up in London on a Wednesday in 1992. Um, <laughs> Do you remember the, the date? <laughs> I, I remember the date quite well because it was the day we left the um, ERM. Ah. And this is obviously going, going back a bit pre-internet. I don't know if you were in London then, but no. the Evening Standard was kind of like the, the main newspaper at the time. And you could get on the tube and pick up a, a discarded Evening Standard. I remember getting on the tube and reading that we'd hiked rates from 10 to 12%. And then I obviously went about my business and got back on the tube a few hours later and found out we'd, we'd hiked rates from 12 to 15%. <laughs> and obviously that, that interested me. In, and around that time, any articles of anything interesting going on in the markets was accompanied by pictures of young men standing up in dealing rooms with you know two phones to their ears and, and kind of like a, a lot of activity. And, and I kind of thought, you know, this is what I want to do. Um, I'm not really that theoretical when it comes to economics and and this is you know i'll be able to use my skills so um yeah so, so i kind of went back and started looking for a few jobs towards the end of my degree and and it's quite lucky at the time um, rbs uh, were launching their first ever graduate recruitment scheme and they wanted people who weren't too quantitative right. and and had a passion for macro and so we were kind of a good fit so i managed to get a on that um, grad scheme went around various desks in the front office which was which was great to go straight into the front office and 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 never left basically, and here yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's I, I think it's similar insofar as that was the dynamic 
back in the 90s. I'm, I'm slightly, slightly younger than you, <laughs> not by much. But uh, those were the days you would see these crazy headlines. And I think it's, it's a similar experience for me in terms of always wanting to work on a dealing floor. But you've focused, I know, well, I've been with State Street for 14 years. You've been here the whole time of that. We, we chat a lot. And I wanted to, before we get into markets, we're mostly going to talk about current markets today, but I wanted to talk also about what's changed for you in that time. It Obviously, 20 years ago, things were very different. 10 years ago, things were very different. How, probably five years ago, you could say a lot of things are different. But what would you say, starting when you started, sort of the heyday, I would say, of Wall Street and the city in the 90s, what's been the biggest change in your approach or the biggest adaptation you've had to make in that time? working on a trading desk so, so when i when i started it was 1994 so this might be quite interesting because you know it was a, a bond market meltdown year um you know we might go on to talking about something like that in, in, in a few minutes but um one of my jobs was to read the economic numbers as they came out and, and shout to the traders if it was positive or negative for currency or you know rates going to go up or down and, and you know that got me really involved straight away in trying to analyze the numbers really quickly and um and, and trade off the back of them and, and and back then you could you could you know you could read the numbers coming out you could react you could trade mm. and you could put a position on and i think the biggest thing that's changed in my career from the start you know i don't trade like that at all now if i trade after number it's probably because my analysis is is wrong if i can put the trade on yeah you know the markets are so much faster so and that's all you know down to electronification of markets so you know what i'm describing here is the rise of the algos and they're certainly faster than me. So, you know, you have to accept that and, and change the way you take risk and, and, and you know, be pre-positioned for numbers. And then on the other side, there's a lot of stuff we do now that we didn't do back then. You know, we stream prices now in, in a multi multitude of currencies um, out to different tenors. And, and that's something even 10 years ago, perhaps was in its infancy. But now that's the way most of our clients um, interact with us. As much as we use a lot of, you know, computers to generate those prices and, and, and the markets, underlying them they do take a lot of um human interaction to make sure they're correct with all the different nuances we get around turns and and and, and different effects so we have to be much more on our pricing and much more in the weeds of individual markets uh, more more than you ever had to be you know 15 years ago i think a lot came out in the wash back then N now it doesn't um you know yeah. everything has to be quite precise so yeah el electronification of markets has changed everything from how we interact with our clients to how we take risk and, and and it's just going with that change. Yeah. Well, let's let's think about the markets now. And in the introduction, I mentioned just how you, you've traded all sorts of products over the years. I think it's been developed markets, emerging markets. There's obviously spot FX rates, but let's focus on U.S. rates. This is the main focus, I think, right now. We're in the midst. You alluded to a potential bond market meltdown. We're in the midst of what has been high rate volatility for the last couple of years, and it doesn't look like it's ebbing anytime soon. And in fact, we're seeing bear steepening of the U.S. curve, higher long-end rates on the back of presumably, well, I don't know. Is it inflation? It can't really be inflation. Is it budgets? What, what's your take on why the, the curve is doing what it's doing right now? It's all really down to fiscal policy. When I say that, I mean, for the last part of my career, fiscal policy hasn't really been a big input into trading decisions. And then since COVID, that's all changed. Uh, obviously, we had a massive amount of uh, fiscal spending. And, and then since then, you know, you've seen how that started to affect markets. So we saw it last September um, in the UK with the mini budget and, and the bond market taking fright to that. And, and I think what we're seeing now is, and if there's one thing I've got wrong this year, is underestimating the, 
the fiscal impact on the economy you know it's enabling it to keep uh, growing in the states um you know at a stronger clip than i think most people would have thought at the start of the year and, and i think that's ultimately starting to push bond yields up when you've got a situation of high debt to gdp ratios we've got quantitative tightening at the moment in the background uh, we're running fiscal deficits that need to be funded. We've got an awful amount of issuance to digest between now and year end. We've had the bodge starting to move as well. So I think there's a few factors thrown in there. But for me, I think fiscal policy is, is a big driver. How things develop will probably very much um, depend on how the authorities react to rising yields. Mm. You know, and I don't, I don't know how they're going to react at the moment. They, you know, you, you look at what happened in the UK. You know, we had austerity for a long time. You know, that's out of favour now. But if we start getting yields at that tight financial conditions more than the authorities want, where does that leave us? You know, there's a lot there's a lot open going forward that that is just too hard to call. Where do you think it's going to go? Because I think when the curve bearishly steepens and this is going back 20, 30 years, there's been a few pronounced episodes. It tends to end in one of two ways. It's either because the Fed is behind the curve, the market starts to reprice terminal rates, basically, or the long term rate and the Fed needs to catch up. And oftentimes that is how it resolves itself. But the Fed can catch up because rates are very low usually when that happens and they can continue hiking or start hiking even. But of course, we're not there right now. We, we have rates already above 5%. The other way it usually pans out is that something breaks and the long end starts to rally back just on a flight to quality. Do you think one of those two scenarios pans out as in the Fed has to restart hikes to tighten policy because fiscal policy is still so loose or something breaks? Or is there a third option in your mind that we go here? No, I, th- I think for me, I'm still in the, in the latter camp. You know, so what we've talked about the fiscal side, you know, there's a lot of structural changes uh, that happened, um, you know, deglobalization as well. And, and, and I think, you know, that's all push yields up. To my mind, I think the Fed have probably already done enough and, and, and the cyclical side's going to start coming into itself again and, um, and, and the economy is going to slow down and, and, and fixed income probably catches a bid from that side of the equation. I think mm-hmm. for me, just because the economy hasn't responded to the, to the rate hikes particularly quickly so far, it doesn't mean it's not going to at all. And I think the amount of monetary tightening we've seen globally starting to be felt in the weaker economies and and I think eventually it'll end up, at, uh, you know, in the US as well. I think we, if bond yields start slipping, then, then then I could be wrong. But if 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 we don't have any sort of big sell-off in bond markets in in the next four to six weeks, I think the cyclical side will take over, and 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 we'll see growth coming off. And you know, and we've already we've already got Fed Fed governors talking about rate cuts next year, right? They're already saying, yeah. oh, you know, once we get growth down to zero, real rates are going to be quite high. If they're right. To my mind, that's going to be quite supportive of bond markets. So the cyclical side should kick in to bring yields down a bit. I mean, we talked about this with Lee Farage a couple of weeks ago about this notion that the U.S. is leading the way, American exceptionalism. And and I think we, we discussed this at the time about it being all about fiscal policy, which you've mentioned. And you just mentioned the Fed being done. Does this happen for the U.S. in the soft landing that everyone is kind of hoping for and pinning their hopes on? Or is this something where something truly breaks and that that notion of the Fed cutting is not just about, well, real rates have fallen because inflation is coming down in this gradualist fashion and we can afford to do this? Or is it rates are cut because actually the economy tips over in your mind? I, I think we might get to that point. Just to my mind, I, I look at the levels of debt around and the, and the amount of tightening, and I just think there's a high chance of, a, of another accident. We've already had you know, SVB 
an issue with the banks. I, I, you know, debt to GP ratios around the world, but we could have a resurgence of issues in Europe. We could have a cold winter pushing gas prices back up, you know, and the ECB feel, you know, they have to keep policy particularly tight and, and that pushes the Eurozone over the edge. I, I kind of feel for me that, that the rate hikes are, are going to work. Um, and I'm more I'm more concerned about that side. But I suppose you could probably look at it as, as sort of a probability range, right? The market already seems to be pricing in this sort of soft landing, no landing scenario. The bond markets might be starting to challenge that. You could argue we've got a 25, you know, 50%, that kind of central corridor, 25% chance the bond markets get a bit unhinged and we get an issue on, on the duration front or a 25% chance that the cyclical side that the economies actually can't take this level of rates. We've hiked rates very quickly to this level. And when we've given it a year to work, uh, you might find that the economy's got used to much lower levels of interest rates and actually mm. can't handle levels at 5%. So I'm kind of more in, in, in that camp at the moment. I'm just trying to see how it plays out and, and trying to be open, open-minded because what's happened since CPI, to my mind, has been quite a wake-up call to, to see that number and then yields, you know, US 10-year yields go up 20 basis points post that number is, is a bit concerning for, my, for me. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. This isn't a typical podcast ad, so don't worry. I'm not going to try and sell you meals delivered fresh to your doorstep or offer you online solutions to your recruiting needs. But what I do want to highlight is our upcoming research event for clients of State Street taking place September 13th and 14th at the Weston Boston Seaport District, right near our headquarters in Boston. It's a chance to connect with innovative thinkers and experts from across our industry, and we'll be hoping to answer some of the most important questions facing markets using some of the research tools that we've talked a lot about on episodes of this podcast, like whether investor cash levels offer any further support for markets for the remainder of this year and into next, or what are the chances that disinflation will reverse and what does that mean for fixed income markets? We'll also take a look at consensus risk on things like the US dollar and whether that has evolved and whether the dollar will be a safe haven or a risky currency next year. And we'll use some of the research we've definitely covered on this podcast, talking through how to determine the most relevant historical analogies for the current environment and then what they signal for the next year. As always, many of our academic partners will be in attendance and speaking, and you'll get to hear from a lot of the folks on the strategy team who I work with as well. It's just generally a good time. So talk to your State Street representative about registering. We'll hopefully see you there. Okay, back to the podcast. Well, we're at an interesting time to be talking about this. We are recording this a couple of weeks before the Fed's Jackson Hole Symposium. And as you mentioned, you've had Fed governors talking about easier policy. Actually, Powell himself at the last meeting was talking about that notion of having wiggle room to lower rates simply because real rates will be in restrictive territory and with inflation coming down, they can they can afford to do that. But is this the time for them to push a message change? I'm thinking specifically at Jackson Hole, or do we have to wait a little bit longer for them to say, yeah, actually, we're not even going to deliver that last rate hike that is in the, the dots. Point, yeah. yeah. Is this too soon or do we need to see a bit more evidence? So, so this is the point where I'd come around and ask you what you think. Yeah. Um, if there was a surprise, it would be they kind of say, we're done. We're, we're more comfortable with inflation. I know some of the some of them are you know, still talking very hawkishly, but they're a bit like an oil tanker, right? And you're not going to get the whole committee on side in one go, but inflation is moving in the right direction now. All I think it would take is one bad sort of payroll print and we could kind of say, right, this is done. But until we get that, how do you think the market will react? If they said we're done and, and, and the market response would be for 10-year yields to push 430, you know, that, I think that would alarm them and they, they wouldn't do that, right? If they knew that was the reaction. If they said, oh, we're done and the market says brilliant and yields go back towards four, 
then they're going to be much more likely to, to say that. So it's kind of how you read the market here, I guess. That is the worrisome thing in that if you take we're done as inflation ramping up again or stabilizing and then maybe picking up because wage growth has not really slowed enough, I think that's the worry. But I do think they're at the point where I think, especially in response to the moves in rates that you've had, they can perhaps message a little bit more dovishly. And I, I'm referring to the work that we've been doing on US inflation. In fact, today, just before we recorded this, Michael's Metcalf has been doing this 10 tests of normalization in US inflation. And for a long time, it's kind of been sluggishly showing that actually, no, we're not really that close to normalization. But as of last week's data, whether it was CPI or then the Michigan survey data that came out towards the end of the week, you have actually now the majority of components saying that inflation's normalized. And it, to my mind, gives them that flexibility, especially given that's happened without housing-related inflation coming off. That can be the potential next shoe to drop. So I don't think they can necessarily say they're done. I actually don't think they can change the messaging too much with the symposium less than two weeks away now. But I think they can put a message around the notion that not only can they afford to skip the occasional meeting now and again, but that they are getting close to terminal rates. And I think that might be the discussion is that terminal is approaching and markets can start to get used to that. If there's a poor reaction to that, yeah, they, I, I suspect they've got a real problem, but I think they've got enough inflation ammunition to be able to say that at the very least. Yeah. And I think people might be concerned about inflation, you know, because oil's going back up. But as you say, that the core, that the rent side, is there's still potentially some some good news to come there. PPI is still is still pretty low overall. Look what's happening in China. You know, those those things that might push inflation up, you've got this large amount of monetary tightening still to fully be felt, to, to my mind. So so I feel, yes, they, they could that they could pause, but I'm, I'm just not sure Jackson Hole's quite soon enough yeah. um, to do that. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll get that at the September meeting. They, they'll take a pass. They maybe then don't intimate that November's very live. I mean, mm. every meeting's live, but you, you know what I mean. They, they, they kind of say to the market at that meeting, oh, you know, we're quite comfortable with things now. Um, and we get this kind of topping out, you know, I, I think the interesting thing will be, you know, how quick the market prices in cuts after that, because we've already had one big move at the start of the year to pricing cuts, which was removed um, with the February um, payrolls number. And then, yeah. you know, we, we put those in again with SVB and we're taking them out again. So that's probably the, 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 the trade that most market participants are looking at now is, is what would an easing cycle look like? And, and that's, that's probably the bigger question. That takes me, I think, to where I want to go next, which is looking at the Fed and the potential for an easing cycle. We, again, something we've talked about a couple of times over the last month on this podcast, particularly whether the Fed does this ahead of other central banks, given the relative strength of the US economy vis-a-vis, -vis, say, Europe and the UK. And that's where I wanted to head next was thinking about Europe, thinking about UK rates in particular. We've got a massive data point this week in the UK. In fact, this podcast, unfortunately, is going to come out after CPI for July is released. But forgetting that, putting that aside for a moment, just thinking about the concept of easing policy. We have all of these central banks, as I mentioned, talking about being data dependent, basically saying meetings are live, but also intimating further hikes are probably going to be few and far between. You've had that certainly from the Fed. You've had it from the ECB. I suspect you're going to start to get it with a little bit more strength from the Bank of England. 
But just thinking about who cuts first, is it going to be the Fed? You would say potentially not when you when you phrase it, with, you know, with the current growth. But <laughs> the way I just the way I just laid yeah. the question out, of course. Yeah. not. But. <laughs> but but you know, I think I think when I look at the market pricing, I think it's really entirely for people that if they're not aware, we've got the Fed first and fairly aggressively, and and then the Bank of Canada, you know, and then and then to a much lesser extent, you've got the ECB, and then, and then to a lesser extent, the Bank of England, and I think. Um, I think, to my mind, that's all down to the current inflation profile. You know, the UK being the laggard uh, with inflation to come down. So it's just going to take us longer to ease to the market's mind. But I actually think if we get a cyclical slowdown, they'll probably end up all all easing and, and roughly at the same time. You know, UK inflation in particular, I think, is very much a product of our energy markets. And, and when we had the spike in energy prices, in, in the US, energy prices went up and then, you know, started falling um, over a year ago, and you know the, the main component bringing inflation down in the UK, and I just think it's it's a delayed process. So the market's just saying, okay, we're just further down down that road, and I think that's that's the justification for, for the current pricing. You know, and, and you, you look at this, you got you got the US and Canada at three percent. You know, you got the EU sort of five percent, and and the UK still up close to seven, even after this week's numbers, right? Yeah. It's interesting because the effects we see in online inflation in the UK, I put a note out about this earlier in the week, suggests that you're seeing even more disinflation than what's coming out from energy. Energy is there, but actually the way we've calculated using the rebates from last year, the drop this month doesn't quite come through in the online data the same way it's coming through or going to likely come through in the official data. So the drop may not be quite as aggressive, but the drop is still there and it's happening in other sectors of the economy. And that's where I do wonder if we are going to start to see pricing pulled forward for easier policy from the Bank of England, maybe from the ECB. But I think that brings me to my last question. We've kind of been here before, in a sense, in that nobody believed, especially on the ECB side, nobody believed them to be as hawkish as they would be until they actually had to really get quite forceful about it and, and be more aggressive in hiking rates. Is that the risk here is that we're starting to maybe talk about, oh, the problems in the Eurozone economy are too great. They're all going to cut at around the same time. But are we underestimating their resolve at this point, their willingness to perhaps break things? The whatever it breaks approach seems to be something that Europe is perhaps pursuing, given growth is already quite slow there. Are they in a position to stop, do you think? Well, certainly not, not quite yet. You know, we, we definitely need further progress on the inflation front. Or a very a very obvious uh, scenario where growth is slowing. When growth slows and goes below trend, I, I think they will naturally believe that inflation will come off. But but yeah, that they've been so badly burnt by this move up in in inflation that they they may they may not sound dovish at all. You know, mm. the, the the curve may stay quite high until we see the whites of their eyes and they're really forced to act. It, it, it could be like that. And and I, and you know, taking a much bigger step back, my whole career has been you know one of sort of bull market for rates. And disinflation and i do think there's a good chance we're entering into a new phase and, and i was just looking back the other day and and um i knew we'd be talking about my career and um i joined state street in 97 when the asia crisis started and one thing that struck me looking back then was the us never cut rates in 97 and, and if you were here you know it felt pretty bearish hmm. um stocks were getting hammered and, and and they didn't actually cut rates until ltcm so yes i could see a scenario where they 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 hang on and they they're really convinced that this inflation dragon is gone before they that, that they ease. But to my mind, I, I think I think that will come fairly obvious over the next six months as inflation recedes, growth slows down. I think it will start to look a bit more like a normal cycle. 
Yeah. Yeah, we are going to get a lot of more data. I think that's that's the key for a lot of these central banks. And it's still, I guess, fairly early in the log and variable lag period that we have to wait to assess a lot of this data. And then to put that to put that long and variable lag into context, you know, yeah. we only really started raising rates in earnest sort of this time last year. Yeah. Really. And you know, and then some of the, you know, the the heavy lifting was done at the back end of last year and, and now we've still got some tightening, you know, going on. So I really I really think to say, oh, it's not, it's not working. It's just way too soon. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the the key thing. Everybody wants the answer straight away, but sadly, the answer doesn't reveal itself probably until it's too late <laughs> in a lot of cases yeah. for these central banks. But I think Pete, we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, I think we probably need to leave it there. Okay. Well, thank you for having me, and I look forward to the next time. Absolutely. For those of you listening all the way to the end, we are probably going to have a quick one on Jackson Hole next week, but we're definitely taking a week off after that. Some much needed vacation is in order, but we'll speak to you after that. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment legal or tax advice and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.